This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. And I'm Olev. And we're going to talk about The Sound of His Horn by Sarban, first published in 1952, and uh, as an audiobook, I don't know, a few years ago, read by the great Stefan Rudnicki. Yes. he's He's got a great voice for material of this weight. Even yeah, if, what, what, yeah even like Dying the, Inside we did. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking a lot about, because that's the last audiobook I heard by him, but he brings a lot of gravitas to stuff that um, even might not you might not think needs it but it, it sort of br- it brings out whatever gravitas is there i was thinking about this book in terms of like how how much should we think of it as a great book like they're trying to sort of advertise on the wikipedia entry you know it's mentioned in the 100 best novels of 1946 to 1987 hmm i, I mean t- i mean t- t- thomas dish is a big heavyweight of science fiction writing and criticism and he he ranks it number 12 so that's hmm. that, you, uh, 12 that, amongst fantasy novels yeah fantasy isn't novel. a fantasy that's, novel though that's even a question i think for it's me. a science fiction novel not a fantasy novel yeah i'm i'm a little unclear i, I understand why you, you want to say it's a science fiction novel i want to say that too but the the, the framing doesn't work olav you uh you i believe expressed interest in this on twitter when we mentioned talking about it so uh and how did that come about? In I, I, well, I had read it about 25 years ago when I went on a big alternate history kick. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, I mean, there weren't a lot of novels talked about amongst alternate history 25 years ago, right? Like it was a short list of the canon of, of the subgenre. Yeah, yeah that, that, was, that was before Mr. Turtle, Dr. Turtle really got going as an example. Yes. Well, well, it, it was right after um, uh, the the Guns of the South had come out that I that I sort of went on a big alternate history kick and you know had to read um, Less Darkness Fall, mm-hmm. um, Bring the Jubilee, uh, and this one uh, for want of a nail the the Sobel book. Um, oh yeah, that's so great. Oh, I love that. I love that book so much. And this one stuck with me as an outlier. And now I don't even know if I would call it alternate history. I don't think it is alternate history. I think it's not alternate history at all. And I think it fits into a genre much older than a lot of other stuff. And that's why we're having trouble classifying it and people calling it science, you know, alternate history. Because it, it, if you think about it, um, you almost don't need it to even have it that the Nazis won World War II. I mean, in 52, it makes sense. But here, today, in 2019? I, I don't know. I think there's something interesting that Sarban has tapped into that a lot of Axis victory novels don't. Uh, it, like, w- when I think of In the Presence of Mine Enemies, the, the Turtle Dove book, mm-hmm. uh, or, or the TV show Man in the High Castle – the the victorious axis is depicted with this futuristic techno utopian kind of veneer there might be ugly stuff going on underneath but it's all about the future and um 
it misses the toxic nostalgia at the heart of fascism. And this book... A rejection of modernity, are, right? That the fascists right. were... were and, and so this whole Huntmaster and this, uh, this sylvan um, existence that these Nazis have built really did tie into that mythologizing of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, it, it's neo-feudalism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why that's why I don't even think it needs like it's it's a hundred. It, it, I guess he's he's saying it's a hundred and something years after Hitler's reign, or is it yes. Hitler's in you know inauguration or whatever? I I believe the term is the war for German rights. Yeah, but is it? Uh, see, I, I wonder if that means like when like. It would, I think it would have to have been like as soon as basically the Nazi party are in power, right? Rather than yeah. at the end of the victory of World War II. I don't think that makes as much sense. So if, if you're projecting 100 years in the future, it's not that far from our future in, in the timeline, right? Um, yeah. World War II is, you know, 70 plus years ago and we've got, uh, you know, a few years before it'll be a hundred years, but, the thing is, is they the twenty thirties maybe? Yeah, and they they've um they've forgotten like if you think about like they're not Hitler obsessed, right? Führer means God now, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. Uh, so if you if you want to say like an alternate history story where Hitler won the war and it's set far in the future, I would say uh, Living Space by Isaac Asimov is a really good example because that's an not an alternate history as much as an alternate universe right that's the yeah one. a succession of alternate universes right so that's the one that's a story where uh they f- find a way to travel to uh to other earths and one of them is uh i guess it's kind of like sliders right except they're 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 doing developers so they're doing real estate with it right selling people their whole planets and stuff and then they find out of course that they're not the only ones and one of these other earths was a nazi victory but it's set so far in the future that they bear the the main characters barely even know who hitler was he's like a he's like genghis khan to them um and this is not like that right this is much more about that um the ss rituals and the whole uh you know race theory and what they're going to do and eugenics and, and genetic yeah, engineering and doing yeah. doing basically uh, all the time spent with you know lions and dogs and hunting stuff uh makes you think of uh who's the ace from world war one who biggles no 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 the nazi ace from world war one oh baron von richweiss often i can't no remember. no he's the reich minister Oh, oh, you took, oh, 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 you mean, oh, you mean the, oh, um. <laughs> what the hell's the, he's the second in command of the Nazis. Because Hitler, he liked hanging out in, you know, in the woods, but he wasn't a huntsman. He was a, he was a vegetarian. So a lot of the uh, stuff that we attribute to Nazis, right, is more like um, a combination of Himmler and, He's the big fat guy. He's Goering. Luf- Goring. Yeah, Hermann Goering. Goring. Okay, Goring, I couldn't yeah. remember his name. Hey, he was yeah, a World War I ace. Um, right. Who became... Right. He, he, 
Yeah, he was the one that wanted to be, be basically live like a Roman emperor. He's mentioned, I think, in this book as well, though they don't use his name. Um, they talk about uh, the Reich Marshal for forests or something like that. The hunt, mm. right? So there's a there is a whole uh, Nazi aesthetic uh, that's present here and it's really interesting to look at this book as like a symbolism book or something like that you know rather than as a um as a alternate history future because it doesn't make as much sense that way i don't think it's interesting you bring up the aesthetic and i think you're right it is it is the the goring uh, aesthetic rather than the albert spear aesthetic yes. and it's the albert it's spear the aesthetic one, right Right, and it's Albert Speer's version of Nazism that we see in almost every Axis victory novel now. Mm-hmm. SSGB, you know, that that's a uh, really interesting uh, Nazi invade England, right, and successfully yeah. take it over. Or what was that great one from, I guess, the 80s that got turned into a TV movie? Um, Fatherland. Fatherland, right. Yeah, that's a very interesting one because it – it, it's set in the 60s, I think, right? And It is. And I, yeah. I think that's a much more Albert, Albert Speer um, sort of future um, where, you know, they're regular people just like us, but unfortunately live in Nazi world. And so it's like, uh, I think that the, it's almost a really interesting analogy for how, in that case, um, people behind the, the Berlin Wall um, have to live. Right. With whatever ideology. And he gets a little bit into that in this book with, you know, the uh, what is her name? Kit, yeah. the girl who. Kit, yeah. The, the quote unquote bird girl. Yeah. Right. Who's who spent time in university rebelling against the uh, the occupiers by slightly uh, tweaking the ideology. Um, and that that whole world that's built up around what we don't see is is uh, I think in one of the reviews I read was. You know, that's what makes it so such an intriguing book. I think that that's one of the things that makes it intriguing. But we do get a ton of like, yeah, a little bit of tech and a little bit of understanding of what is the support system for what is essentially a game reserve on a private estate, right? Yeah. So go for it. I just feel like this book captures the horror of a Nazi regime. more fully than some because it's it's going away from that smooth clean spear looking going into the more gritty sort of darkness that is that a nazi regime would uh entail um have either you read the the cyril cornbluth story two dooms I have not yet, but that's what no. you mentioned frequently, so I'm going to have to... Uh, yeah, yes, I've I, I mentioned it a number of times, so I'll mention it again for the audience. It's basically a... It's, it was written in the 50s. It's about a physicist who takes magic mushrooms and gets transported into a future where the Nazis win and and the Japanese win, so he winds up in this villi- village in the West Coast, the Japanese, right? And then he winds up in a concentration camp, and then he runs up in Chicago where the Nazis are like half-obsessed with sorcery and the occult, and it just shows the a different faces of the banality of the evil of both regimes in a way that few novels to sound of one being an exception really get that of like how a fascist victory would actually play out. And it's, it is one of my favorite stories. And if we could ever find it on audio, Jesse, we need to do mm-hmm. it. That sounds good. 
Um, I, I think that the, you know, the original novel of Man in the High Castle is very good at, you know, laying out some of the horrors of, not the Japanese end, but the, the Nazi end, Nazi of, end yeah. of what a victory would mean for the rest of the world. Um, he doesn't show it viscerally though. Um, whereas this is, it's all about that, you know, the, the body horror, the fear horror, the, uh, being, being ensconced in a, in a, I think one reviewer called it a Gothic castle, right? Um, with this horrible master who's at the center of it. Um, I had an anticipation in here that I did not, uh, see fully fulfilled, but I, I it's one of the reasons I, I was really attracted to this book in the first place when I, I heard it years ago, um, is the whole story of the wild hunt. You guys know this story, right? Yeah. 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 The, the whole, yeah, the whole idea of, of fairy and the wild hunt and mm-hmm. hunting humans. And, and he's in Sarban, is clear is clear going with that sort of as a theme and basic because i mean he's he's transported into a quote fairy land and sort of has yeah. to suffer that suffer the wild hunt and then he escapes back to the regular world and he's not believed that he actually went through or at least it's implied that mm-hmm. no one, that, that no one will believe his experience that he's just basically he doesn't necessarily even he he believes his own experience himself i mean from from the beginning and the and portions of the novel. It's not clear he actually believes himself what he went through, or at least he's not fully be able to work that out in his head. Was it real or was it all a delusion? But the end of the novel kind of makes sense that, I mean, yeah, the Germans never account for where he was. So, and so where, what, so if he didn't, then where was he all that time? So I, I, I take it as written that, yes, he was transported to the future and mm-hmm. came back. Olav, you, you know about this, the wild hunt. It's sort of a, European I'm, myth. I'm less familiar with it. I'm afraid it's really interesting. It, and it, what's what uh, Paul sort of briefly touched on on what it is. But basically, there's this this hunt master. And if you uh, have your copy of Dungeons and Dragons uh, Monster Manual or something, I think it's in the maybe it's in Deities and Demigods. I'm it's in Deities and Demigods. Okay, Serunos. Yeah, yeah. There's a the hunt master and the hounds. And basically, there's this this god of the hunt in the sky and at certain times of the year i guess in the fall would make most sense um he appears in the sky perhaps like a thundercloud it might be he might be thor right he might be a number of things but he appears in the sky and the hunt hunts men who appear with him uh will harry the countryside uh driving game ahead of them, just like in a regular hunt. And one of the myths that is associated with it, or, yeah, it must be myths rather than legends, right? <laughs> is that um, anyone who hears the sound of the horn of the Huntmaster either joins the hunt or becomes one of the hunted. And this is, I think, really interesting in terms of its pre-fascism, Right? If you do not conform to the leader's command, you are prey to the leader's minions, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what, what's so interesting. It's interesting. And there's connections to um, her and the hunter, you know, that character from Macbeth. Isn't it Macbeth? Is he mentioned in Macbeth? It's one of the Shakespeare's plays. Um, 
<clears throat> and uh, he's also in that great series Robin of Sherwood, although he's not quite the perhaps malicious force he is in in the original legend. But the the thing is, is that that horn creates dread in the in our narrator, our viewpoint character, yes. our inner narrator, and it is a dread that he can't articulate. And then when he knows what it means, he knows what it means, but he can't explain what it is. And then when he finds out what it is, it's exactly what he dreaded, right? That he's going to be hunted. There's so many things in this story that are connected to other uh, fantastic stories. Um, for example, one of my favorites, um, and I think about it a lot, is... Um, uh, uh, the Hounds of Zaroff, a.k.a. Um, the Richard Connell story. What am I talking about? Most Dangerous Game? The Most Dangerous Game, right? You know this story a lot? Oh, of course. Yes, quite well. A great well. movie um, and of fairly faithfully uh, adapted um, from the story. Um, and it's interesting because in that case, it's a uh, Russian um, count who has, uh, because of the Russian Revolution, gone and um, built himself a new dominion on an island in, what is it, uh, off of South America, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it's really about what people will do when unencumbered by uh, morality, which is really... Yeah, it's, a, it's an unhinged from the rest of what we find is good morality, right? Uh, the hunt master in this story seems like uh, the, the Lord. I can't remember his name. I should look it up. Um, he's, he's, he's different from all of the people who come to visit his estates. And he's different from the narrator, right? He's sort of a throwback is, I guess, the idea we're supposed to think. But um, I don't get the sense that he's unique, that this is the only estate in all of yeah. Greater yeah, no, no. Yeah, the, the, the Reich Master Forester Count Hans von Hackelberg. I'm guessing there's right. many of them, many of him scattered through the Nazi Dominion. That's the that's the impression I get. That right. This there's is a not whole just one realm. Yeah. Uh, of basically, um, what we would see in the 17th century. I mean, this is this is straight out of uh, the the horror story uh, uh, that forms the background for the Hound of the Baskervilles, right? Um, the curse of the Baskervilles is that a uh, the baronet um, uh, of the Baskerville from like 300 years ago had um, chased a girl through the forest with his hounds, and uh, forever after the family was cursed for that sort of moral indiscretion. So there is a morality there. It's just evil morality, right? It's not amor. It's not amoral. It's like we have a, you know, the Nazis have a, a caste system. And what, what the doctor uh, introduces us to in the story is, you know, the horrors of it. Um, and we don't, we, we don't fully see the whole system. We have to infer it, but it's horrible, right? <laughs> yeah. It's real visceral and it's real horrible and it's all worked out. It is not going to be an easy book for people who are, are, dealing with trauma. I, I think that it, that it, it needs a very strong warning that uh, people who have suffered 
gender-based violence, uh, race-based violence are going to find it very difficult to get through the sound of his horn. Hmm. Yes, I, I, I agree. It, it would be a very difficult book for a number of readers to get through because because uh, Sarban or John William Wall is the actual uh, name of n- name of the author. He was a British diplomat, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah he, he he doesn't hold back. It's just like because he really brings us the. I mean, Alan's Alan's fears and what he sees and what he goes through is very it. I mean, listening to this book, it creeped, creeped me the bleep out. To, to be to be honest, he, he's he's hiding in the forest. He's watching these events. He's trying to escape. And yeah, for for certain readers, this is definitely not a book you want to just and like. Oh, I'll go listen to this for fun. You, you know, and it's it's written only seven years after the war, so so I feel like Sarban has a a better grasp of. Nazism and what it meant, and the ties between uh, sexism and uh, and the the Reich. Uh, he 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 nails those connections. You know, this is not just a caste system. It's not just a nostalgic system. It is a very um, a misogynist system. Well, I think it's it's anti-human. Uh, the the women are turned into cats, right? And the men oh, yeah. are turned into hounds. And uh, you, you know, uh, the uh, uh, almost contemporaneous novel that it reminded me of, and I almost wondered if it was uh, if Sarbon was making a vegetarian argument. Yeah, at it, times. It, it feels like that at at the beginning, the, in the opening frame, right? Yes, but it it reminds me of uh, Planet of the Apes, the original novel, the Pierre Boulet. Mm-hmm. Novel, not ju- not just in terms of those themes, but structurally. You know, it's this uh, narrator telling the story to someone else, and it's an unreliable narrator uh, who um, ends up in a world unexpectedly is captured. Uh, at first, uh, he's treated with some respect, but later becomes an object of some uh, derision. It, 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 the, the, the difference between human and prey gets blurred in mm. both books. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, another story that I, I always th- I think about a lot um, when, it, when it comes to framing. I love framing stories. You know, Oval Portrait's one of my favorite stories because it has a massive frame and a tiny story. <laughs> Um, there's, uh, the very first read along we did on this podcast many, many years ago was the turn of the screw, which has a framing device at the beginning. Um, at everybody, it's probably a Christmas party or something and everybody's sitting around. And, uh, then the, the plot is given out as here's another turn of the screw. Here's another, you know, twist on an old variation of ghost stories. Um, here we've got that same premise but what i like kind of about it i was keeping track of the time so this is a four-hour audiobook right um it i believe i'm just going to check on this the front the opening frame starts where is it a screenshot here we go um at 42 minutes 
into the book. That's when the f- opening frame stops, right? So uh, at the uh, the last chapter is also a frame. Um, so we've got a, almost an hour of a four-hour story being the frame. The three hours in the interve- intervening period, the time in between, is actually a reasonable amount of time if you're sitting around after dinner and you don't have TV and you're, you're trying to be social for one guy to tell another guy's story as to why he isn't marrying his intended. Right. And that's, so we actually have two narrators. There's the outer narrator who is the one who's telling us the story. And then there's the inner narrator who tells it to him and to us. Right. And we get a sense of what this, uh, XPOW is like from that outer narrator. And we get, uh, a story that we are authenticated <laughs> by that outer narrator. He told me this story. So it's kind of fun. There's a Guy de Montpessant story that I'm a big fan of. It's called The Wolf or The White Wolf. Um, and it has a couple other names too. Le Loup is the original French. It's from 1889. And it's a hunting story. Um, it doesn't have the, the fantastic elements as much, but I want to read you the opening uh, of that and then um i'll read the closing it it is not framed exactly uh it is framed it's just it, we're out of it after after the first sentence here it goes here is what the old marquis d'arville told us towards the end of saint hubert's dinner at the house of baron de ravel we had killed a stag that day the marquis was the only one of the guests who ha- oh sorry the frame is there it's just uh, down a bit here. We had killed a stag that day. The Marquis was the only one of the guests who had not taken any part in the chase, for he never hunted. All through that long repast, we had talked about hardly anything but slaughter of animals. The ladies themselves are interested in tales sanguinary and often unlikely. And the orators imitated the attacks of the combat of men against beasts, raised their arms, romanced in a thundering voice. Um, Monsieur Darville talked well with a certain poetry of style, somewhat high sounding, but full effect. He must have repeated this story often for he told it fluently, not hesitating on words, choosing them with skill to produce a picture. Gentlemen, I have never hunted. Neither did my father, nor my grandfather, nor my great grandfather. This last was the son of a man who hunted more than all of you put together. He died in 1764. I will tell you how. And that, that's the end of the first frame. Um, the, the, the stuff in between the, this and the end is, uh, a horrible story, a wonderful, funny, horrible story about these two brothers who kill everything. They hunted the birds at breakfast. They hunted the squirrels at lunch and then went out and hunted deer in the evening, right? Um, mm-hmm. and then one day, uh, a terrible wolf's, and this is a sort of a true story of France, right? Turned into a movie, um, uh, was terrorizing the countryside and a bounty was put out on it. The two brothers who fancied themselves great hunters went after it. And I believe this is on the border with Germany. It's like Alsace Lorraine territory, right? Um, went off after the wolf and one brother is killed in the chase, um, his brains are dashed out, 
and he grabs his his brother's body, puts it on his horse, chases, keep continues the chase after the this white wolf. At the end, um, uh, it goes like this. Scrolling to the end here, he returned. He returned to the chateau, laughing and crying like Gargantua at the birth of Pantagruel, uttering shouts of triumph and stamping with joy and relating the death of the beast and moaning and te- tearing his beard and telling of that of his brother. So just like the the guests at the party at the beginning of the story, right? And right. O- often later, when he talked again of that day, he said with tears in his eyes, quote, if only that poor Jean ha- could have seen me, uh, or it would be Jean, that poor Jean could have seen me strangle the other. He would have died content. I am sure of it. So, when he confronts the wolf, he jumps off uh, his horse, um, runs up to it, and strangles it, quote-unquote, gently, which is really... Yeah, yeah that, that's contradictory. It's freaky, gently. right? Like, what does that mean? And then here's the last page. Uh, the widow of my ancestor inspired her orphan son with the horror of the chase, which has transmitted itself from father to son as far down as myself. The Marquis d'Arville was silent. Someone asked, that story is a legend, isn't it? And the storyteller answered, I swear to you that it is true from one end to the other. Then a lady declared in a little soft voice, all the same, it is fine to have passions like that. So he's undercutting his story, right? At the end, which is something Montpassant often does. All of you are saying this is like a, a gender horror. I think it's more about class, right? It's that the guy, he can have an estate and make slaves out of people, male and female, right? From whatever races he doesn't like because he's a rich guy who can control other people's bodies, lives, and and basically torture them because he's a rich guy. And because the the whatever society around him you know it's basically it is feudalism right and that mm-hmm. it's not so much about control of women because i don't think there's a lot of we don't i don't think we see i was going to say the marquee um what's the reich reich master of forests here he doesn't yeah. have a wife or uh, you know there's no females in his his hunting party right the only females then- in the story are a kit uh the 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 cat girls and then the 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 uh, fiancé in the frame, and she's the one who's in favor of the hunt. So it is, it, it is, it, it's like, it, it doesn't say I'm a, this is a pro-vegetarian story or anything like that, right? But it could be interpreted that way, I suppose. I felt like the descriptions of meat uh, were stomach-churning. So I, I don't know enough about Sarban to actually venture an opinion on whether or not it's pro-vegetarian in the same way that i could but it's anti-hunting i think is it's is you know at least in the in the storytelling that's the purpose of the story uh that he tells right what's that line at the beginning the uh is it from oscar wilde the unspeakable uh in chase of the inedible yes yes is that is that Oscar Wilde? I'm just I can't remember, but it sounds like something Oscar Wilde would say, right? Um, 
in any case, uh, th- that frame. The unspeakable it, chasing the uneatable, and that is Oscar Wilde. Okay, yes. it sounds like Oscar Wilde, right? Um, that, I, I, I love thinking about Oscar Wilde. I was just reading um, uh, The Yellow Book. That's one of those. It's, yeah, you tweeted about that today. Right, right, last, late last night. Um, so that uh, The Yellow Book is actually mentioned. It's sort of the focused book inside of um, a picture of Dorian Gray. Um, yeah, it's the book inside the book. Yeah. And yeah, and it's the, it, you know, this, the whole yellow 90s um, period um, is fascinating to me because it, it's the end of the Victorian era, right? Getting close to the end of the Victorian era. And it's, it's got a lot of um, stuff that would echo later. But uh, the fact that he uses this book as, it's a decadent book, right? A book of uh, yellow book is actually a magazine. It's a quarterly magazine. And Wayne June pointed out last night, uh, or maybe early this morning, that it was very expensive, a dollar fifty uh, for a magazine in 1895. That's a lot of money. Um, uh, there was a UK equivalent price there too, but I, I couldn't tell you what it means. <laughs> in any case, you know, a 400 page book. That's still a lot of money, a dollar fifty back. You know, back then that would have been, a, you know. More than a day's wages for most people. It was a book for artists and, and this, these high class folks, right? The people who could afford, uh, to buy something like that and who had the leisure time to read it and all that stuff. Um, and whenever you're reading Oscar Wilde, you get the sense that he's playing a game. Well, that's not true. Not whenever it's before he's arrested and thrown in prison and basically tortured in prison. You get a sense that he's playing a game. He's tweaking the nose of the class that he hangs out with, and they love it, right? All the all his plays are like that. In fact, a yellow book is mentioned, I believe. You know, yeah, it's alluded to in uh, uh, an ideal husband. Um, somebody says to him, uh, uh, "That book is blue. I prefer yellow books or books with a yellow." jacket or something like that and so it's, it's it's probably in the importance of being earnest too i think yeah it's not, well, maybe it was importance of being earnest there's a lot of he's playing a game where he he makes fun of the class that runs things um and then when you know some powerful dude and it was a powerful dude um took offense to the fact that he was having se- uh, that uh uh wild was having sex with his son um he got thrown in prison Right. Because he was actually he was actually powerful, whereas Wilde was only popular. Right. He was rich, but he was popular rather than, you know, powerful. And that's what I like. Yeah. You can't really tweak the nose of of, uh, you know, remember when Hillary Clinton was on uh, Saturday Night Live and they had mm-hmm. the actress who was playing uh, her on there, too. Um, Kate McKinnon, yeah. There you go. And they had them together, and they that's sort of a thing they do on Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live only tweaks as far as they're able to tweak. They right? they pull their punches, yeah. Absolutely pull their punches. Um, and, and the thing is, is Trump has been on there, right? So if they have him on there with, again in the future, which they could very well do, um, th- they would, ha- would they have him on there with the guy who's playing him now, Alec Baldwin, right? Could very well, well I, dude. I, 
I, I, I, I think I think Trump I think Trump's skin is too thin to allow him to do that. Uh, I don't know. He 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 doesn't like to be make, made fun of. He, Trump is very different that way. I know we we, we jumped into politics. Sorry, listeners, <laughs> but I think his skin is way too thin to allow himself to laugh himself at like that. He never laughs at himself ever. He's 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 done similar things in the past. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not uh, predict- making any predictions. My point is is I see this as like. Got, sorry, go for it. He, he's got he's gotten more thin skinned over the years. I think. He used to be able to take a joke better. I I don't think I don't think his main attacks are on Saturday Night Live stuff, anyways. But the the point is is you know the when people don't when people don't appreciate Saturday Night Live, it's usually because they do pull their punches, um, and they know they have to in a certain sense because you know if you offend too much, you're going to get in trouble. So they can. They can poke fun at all sorts of folks, and they do. Um, but it's not in a sense that, you know, they're going to – I don't think anybody's ever uh, – yeah, I don't think anybody's ever been fired from Saturday Night Live for going too far. I think the closest we came was with um, uh, Sinead O'Connor. Right? O'Connor, and, yeah, the picture of the Pope, yeah. And, and she, was, she was making a point that I think a lot of people uh, still are not 100% you know, down with, you know, the whole, um, having, uh, raping lots of children angle. Right. So that she got banned from the show for saying something that was a little bit too, um, true, right. Not politique and not, not people not willing to accept. So I don't know how we got onto this exactly, but I think that what's interesting about this book is it doesn't say I am a, I am a, um, a vegetarian propagandist book, or I am uh, in favor of one particular form of government. Obviously, the inner narrator is no fan of the Nazis, which is probably a wise move, right? Um, the outer narrator is more concerned about uh, their marriage than anything else. And then there's that line near the end where he says, um, you need to tell this story to your wife or your intended and what does he say? I think it's the last line. I'm not so sure. I, I thought the last line had to do with the cat. It, oh, you're right. The, yeah, the it last is line to do with the cat. And of course, the cat yeah. is um, a metonym for his wife. I think <laughs> I, oh, she's I a wild think... cat, right? She's the she's yes. the one not, or maybe she's a hound. It, it, she is she is the hunt. She's the one who likes fox hunting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I I made the connection between her, the cat, and the and the cat girls of. Uh, that's that's where I future. went with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's uh, she, uh, she is Kit, uh, right? She uh, what's like? Why doesn't he want to tell her? Is it because he doesn't want to? He doesn't want to tell her he was uh, cuddling up to a a girl in a forest in Germany, uh, in some distant hundred year old future, or. Is he not want to tell her because uh, it's a screed against uh, an activity that she so enjoys? I think she knows he's not into it, right? And he even says at dinner, right? It's the cruelty, the horror, and sh- and they oh the terror, right? And they're and like, now he's super terror? not into it, having been hunted himself. He's super not into it, right? Now. Right, exactly. And uh, th- that goes right back to the hounds of Zaroff. I always call it that. 
because it's a better title, I think, than The Most Dangerous Game. Um, because the main character there is a world-famous hunter, right? And when Zaroff uh, invites him into his house and finds out he's a world-famous ha- hunter, he's like, ah, I, too, my, I myself am a hunter too. And so he sees as a fellow hunter, right? And when he shows him his trophy room and our... Our hero says, oh, that's a bridge too far for me. And he says, well, I have a solution to that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, um, there is a tension between what is animal and what is human. In this story, in The Hounds of Zaroff, um, in... A in lot the, of science fiction. Absolutely. And, and that's why I was thinking... Which is why I keep thinking this is a science fiction, not a fantasy novel. Exactly. It, it feels a it, lot like it, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I, my brain is killing me for a second. I was like, Island of what? Yeah, Dr. Moreau, it's yes. the Island of Dr. Moreau, um, yes. sort of not... But with Nazis, right? After, after well, World with War Nazis II. and extra hunting, yes. Yeah, so you've got a very late 19th... In fact, an 1890s story... Um, or novel that uh, looks at all these horrible experiments. Vivisection was actually the target of that. Uh, you know, Wells was m- a man in favor of science, um, and he was not in favor of needless cruelty on animals. Um, and go for it's it. a different Wells story that I thought of. I mean, the time machine is really obvious, but again, it had that narrator. Mm-hmm. Within an, it's uh, a story. real, yeah, uh, it's super common in that period. It's great. Keep going. Yeah, but uh, I mean, the there's the time travel element here. There's the uh, unreliable narrator telling of the time travel. I almost was. I at one point I was wondering whether or not Sarbon was making uh, Wells illusions uh, consciously. It it feels like it. There is another. Um thread that i don't know if paul noticed it but we we did a bunch of books uh that he might recall um there's another thread a whole utopian future that people fall into in i guess it's in the 1890s as well maybe it's 1880s um the bellamy school Mm -hmm. right you know you know about these books Um, I, i don't okay what's his name what's his last name uh, first name, I should say, Bellamy. Um, I believe it's, it's Edward Bellamy. Two thousand. Uh, looking it's Edward Bellamy, looking backward. Looking yes. backward, uh, which is we've got to do at some point. So this book was like the hugest hit. Yeah, it was eighteen eighty eight, and inspired tons of people to write sequels. And um, Heinlein, Heinlein yeah. did a novel. In fact, his first novel is the one that you know came out quite late. Is a for us yeah. living, yeah, yeah, is a response to that, and it affects so many things. There's a great, really funny movie called Just Imagine, it's a science fiction comedy musical from the 30s. It's really hilarious, um, <laughs> and like fun to watch too. So, you should check it out if you can. Um, that has the same premise. It's it's also in uh, CM Cornblue's um. The Marching Morons, that's the, the premise. Which became Idiocracy, yep. Right, so a guy, f- basically, a guy falls asleep. Uh, it, in fact, it's mentioned in here, in the style of, um, uh, who's the American? Rip Van Winkle. Rip Van Winkle, right, um, and wakes up in the future. And he, he suggests that in here, right? He says, um, had I 
been in a coma for a hundred years? And the doctor's like, no. <laughs> or, 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 um, Armageddon 2419, aka Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers, same, absolutely. Same, same thing. And even in the, you know, the latest, uh, the last Buck Rogers TV show, right, had the same premise. A guy from, uh, the past went yep, yep, up in the future. Yep. And we it see a utopia, right? Um, and of course, every utopia is a dystopia in some ways, right? So well, dystopia is utopia. In the first episode, they show the, the ruins where the where, right. where, where the degenerate people. Are. We never see that again for the rest of the series. But that first episode, it's absolutely clear. You have the nice domes where everyone's happy, and then you have the rest of the earth, which is a mess. Yep, it's a it's a happy liberal future inside the city, and we don't spend time with the homeless people who are outside the city, <laughs> right? Everybody's super happy, yep, enjoying we're, we're their we're fancy clothes with robots, yep. um, and they spend and, time in outer space fighting Ming the Merciless. And then outside the city, we never talk about those you're, dirty, you're, you're, disgusting you're, you're folks. Mixing, you're mixing your properties. I mean, Buck Rogers never fought Ming. You're thinking the Raconian Empire. God, dude, it's the I same thing. It's the same thing. I mean, <laughs> the they're, they're clones know. of each other, right? So, I mean, it's the, what Star Wars is too. Um, if I can just digress for, for a second, I would love to read a Marxist analysis of mm. Guild Gerard's uh, Buck Rogers. And has has any intellectual property that was at one point so culturally central as Buck Rogers disappeared from the public consciousness quite as thoroughly? Like, where is Buck Rogers now? There's no... There's no reboots. Like, There's not no yet. reboots. Not yet. Yeah. Well, we'll get it eventually. I mean, they no, tried no, to no, reboot but it's it. Been, it's been 38 years since Buck we Rogers. We haven't had a Space 1999 either. Uh, there was no. the, the TSR Buck Rogers in the early 90s. That's the most recent. Right. TSR? Yeah, oh, the game. Right. Mm-hmm. The, oh, the novels. Game, but that, 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 does, that doesn't count. I'm talking about – I mean, you think in the in – the, in a world of, t- of endless reboots of TV shows and movies, that somebody would have decided to reboot Buck Rogers by now. It's a good. It's a good point, Olaf. Why is yeah. that? I I can't explain it other than I'm I'm wondering if the Dial Family Trust uh, might have legal issues, or if there's some internal uh, debate over who owns the IP. That would be my best guess. I I, I mean I mean you could really revisit revise it and get a modern sensibility and explore the questions of Buck Rogers in a, in a good way. But yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There were, there were, there were a couple when there's also, there's also a couple. Yeah, there were, yeah, they're right. Because, um, what's his name? Jerry Parnell and Larry Niffin collaborated in the world building for those TSR novels, as I recall now. Yes. But yeah, that's the last time anyone's touched Buck Rogers, at least visibly. Uh, I think there's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think we need more Buck Rogers anyways. Um, <laughs> myself, uh, it's like Superman. Um, I think we're way overdosed on Superman. Um, he's, I, I always think about that when we did that show, Paul, on, uh, when worlds collide, uh, oh, yeah. Palmer and Philip Wiley book that was huge and influenced greatly the, uh, origin of Superman, right? Um, with the alternative planet and, you know. Right, yeah, and, a, and a lot of, and a lot of other things. Either of you read the sequel to one No, I really, I really oh, yes. love the art yeah. in there. I gotta yeah, yeah, say, yes, it's amazing. I, I, 
I talked a lot about it on that podcast. I really like the sequel because, you know, you got it's this, good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm it's like lost civilizations it. on the planet. Is the planet going to leave the solar system and we're going to freeze to death? How are, are, are the earth communities who land on here going to cooperate or fight? Mm-hmm. It's great. It's very interesting. And it, it has all that horrible Galtz Gulch stuff in the first book, you know, the, you know, we are yeah. the elites and this, this lifeboat is for us because we, we put it together using our own ingenuity, all that stuff. Um, and I like that the, the way that they rebooted that was as, yeah, as yeah, that they, comedy they, they, movie, they, 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 I, I 2012, yeah. right? Uh, 2012 yeah, 20, is, is a sort of unofficial sequel, oh, not sequel, unofficial reboot of this really horrible idea of, you know, a bunch of, elites escaping the planet and leaving everybody else behind um oh, come on elon musk will totally do that given half a chance uh yeah. well you know uh, the thing is is he he's working on it but let's get <laughs> let's get him to mars first and then we'll deal with it <laughs> and leave him on mars no 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 no. no 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 he's he's you got to treat him like a he's like um look he's like heinlein he's not he's not a horror he as far as I know, right, uh, the guy who was running the American space program, he was a fucking SS Nazi, right? <laughs> That's a bad guy. He got whitewashed. Elon Musk, he's, he's, you know, he's, 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 he's yeah, he exactly. Is. He's Harriman. So, you know, as long as you, uh, don't let him own the world, we're good because you need guys who are really into, uh, you know, pushing tech ideas. But you got to regulate the market too, right? You gotta make sure you know he's not a bad yeah. dude, as far as I could tell. He's maybe no, a bit no, mean to he, his wife he, or something, but he's just building a glorious future that you and I aren't going to be a part of. Well, uh, yep. I, I would say uh, the tech can uh, have benefits in other ways. I mean, yeah, I just in comparison, I think we're we're doing very well compared to. Uh, you know, the way they treated uh, Nazis. <laughs> now, I, I'm In guessing some of what we've just it. said might end up on the cutting room floor. No, but... we don't cut anything. Oh, okay. Very uh, rarely. Well, can I just uh, return to the subject of the sound of his horn? Go for it. Yeah, we um, haven't left it. We're just, we're just dancing around it. I, I feel like it has aged more in the past 25 years than it did in the first 40 years of publication because it was about it was about 40 years old when i read it and i think 93 or 94 and it feels so much more dated now than it did when i first read it uh almost by an order of magnitude the the ponderousness of it the um the sort of um almost self-indulgent descriptions. I quite like them. I, 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 I totally agree with you, you suggesting it's, it, it has become more of its time in the last 20 years than it has in, in the first 40 years, right? Way more. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this style of flowery, beautiful description i spend my time reading lord dunsany and going "Ooh, this stuff is wonderful but yeah uh, it, it, i think the material is is perfect 
I think that the, you know, for what it is, but I think it's, it's relevance as, uh, what, or maybe it's the relationship people have to it. Right. So in, if you imagine reading, uh, the man in high castle in the sixties, um, you would have a different relationship to it in part because world war two is that much closer and also because it's set in the sixties. But I don't feel the man in the high castle book has aged as a novel at all. I think it's only aged in the relationship because it's, it's a piece of art. And I think of this is very much in that style. It's a piece of art rather than, um, a commercial work designed to, you know, put bums in seats. You see what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. Because it's, it's not a commercial work to put bums in seats. It, I think there's a reason there hasn't been a movie adaptation or a TV adaptation, because I don't think, I think it's much more intellectual uh, than it is, even though it's got a lot of physical stuff going on in it, there's a lot of waiting for the actual hunt to happen. Um, there's spectacle. I, Go for honestly, it. I don't think a screen adaptation of this would be possible unless you're talking a Bloomhouse horror torture porn. Ah. Because yeah. Yeah. Th- this is a novel that reminded me at times of, of um, those horrible jigsaw movies or the Saw um, movies. Yeah. The Saw movies. Yeah. The first Saw movie is the only one I've seen. Um, it is a delightful ending in the sense that it gives you the horror of horrors. Now, if you, if you walk out of the theater and start thinking about why any of this is happening, um, honestly, I can't even remember what, what the explanation was, but that's not the point. The, the whole point of that movie was the exclamation point, right? So it, it, we have to, we have to deal with it. Like what is, what is the uh, exercise for? And obviously the, the novel medium, I mean, I, I think this actually would be a better as a, even though, Stefan Rudnicki did a great job on uh, narrating. I think it's better probably as a print book because I wanted to dwell more on certain paragraphs and certain sentences than I could uh, at the pace of an audiobook. You know what I mean? Yes. If this was a book I didn't want to read, didn't want the audio to go at speed because, yeah, I, wa- I, wa- I wanted to – Saber's not the right word. I wanted to immerse myself and really put myself into Alan's plight, as it were. As horrible as it was, that's the whole point is to feel this, this novel wants to make you feel his fear, feel his apprehension, feel his being treated like an animal. That's what this book's trying to evoke. And well, yeah, and but no, there's no offense also, to Stefan, but I think the print works better than audio for that. I think it, w- I think it probably would, but I think there's also like, um, it's, it's not so much as immersing in the characters. I was, I was wanted to spend more time like, noticing the connections between the, the the outer narrator story and the inner narrator story because there was a lot of things that suggested like I, i'm not in favor of you know giant academic theses that nobody reads except they need to do it to get their degree um but i am in favor of big long blog posts that <laughs> analyze the shit out of stuff right and um this could be done that way because there's so many things in the in the meeting in the meals right in the hall the torchbearers the 
the the kinds of like I I was like, wait, is that what I think it is? Like for example, um they truss up the uh the uh girls that they've hunted, right? And then they're going to quote unquote eat them. Now the narrator never says I'm I, I'm saying quote unquote. It's not didn't ever say that actually, <laughs> as far as I can tell. They trust them up as if they're going to eat them. They pluck off the feathers and stuff like that, right? Um, and I think that 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 is like, um, it's not cannibalism. It's more like sadism and rape and stuff like that, right? But I couldn't yes. spend enough time thinking about what what does this all mean, and and all I w- was thinking is oh. That has some parallel to what we saw earlier. It's sort of really interesting is the, the gentlemanly uh, country estate of England sort of atmosphere that we have, right, in the, in the opening. And the, uh, I want to say German, but it's not, Nazi uh, baron estate that we have in this future um, dystopia. And then there's also the two teams that went to war in this war and the previous war. Um, and there's the two uh, cages. One is the cage for the, um, of the, uh, of the prisoner of war camp. And then the one is the cage of the estate. They're both bounded by, you know, barbed wire or boron shooting laser beams or whatever it is. Right. And there's a commandant and they have these games that they play within to play with the guards. Right. And on the outside of that wall, um, there's the, another camp, right? Uh, the, uh, concentration camps where the prisoners aren't let go. And then there's the, uh, places in between where there's slave labor employed, just as it's mentioned in the book, right? Um, slave labor employed, uh, all over Germany to get the war industries going. But outside that estate at the beginning of the story and the end of the story, there's servants and people who are supporting that country estate where, you know, a couple of people are on nice vacation. So there's a lot of parallels as to what, what, what it all means. And basically I think it's not so much an argument. You need to become a vegan today as much as um, maybe uh, we need to consider the feelings of not just other creatures, but uh, our fellow human beings, those of the female persuasion, those of the male persuasion, uh, those of the fox persuasion, if you're a other kin or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just a call for, uh, empathy and, um, and s- sort of like a dwelling on the, on the results of war and all that setting, right? It's not like a particular phenomenon, but I, I think if we'd spent a little more time or I was able to spend a little more time dwelling on particular lines, I might have been able to make even more connections than I'm, you know, I felt sparking away while I was listening. So I kind of envy yeah. the the read the reading it in paper in some cases. In this case, I think it would work really well. And I read it in paper the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found this time more difficult to read it. Uh, I found it more viscerally upsetting, and maybe it's just a function of age, but it is it is not an easy book uh, if you get squicked out by um, the treatment 
of these animal people or the the uh i don't i i believe it was spelled out that they were uh surgically yeah, surgically. Modified. Yep. So, yeah, so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It was surgical well, that, and eugenic. There's an implant yeah, breeding. Well, there's uh, the the male servants of the doctor are all running to fat. He said, and then we're told they're they're gelded. Yeah. Yeah. They. Yeah, yes. I was thinking, but there are voice boxes are modified or removed, and and they're. I was there not brain surgery as well. Yeah, it mentions that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 was what I was. Not sure if it was spelled out, but they are basically uh, and surgically bread. also bread, lessened. right? Yeah, and yeah. there's uh, there's also you know what what's happening to Kit. Um, she was naughty, and they sent her to a a camp where she escaped from right herself, um, and then she was ended. That's how she ended up on the estate, and she was sent for basically reeducation, um, and. Uh, as something to practice on, right? For the uh, for the students, yeah. The students, and uh, it's so one of the one of the things I like to think about when uh, I'm thinking about utopias, dystopias. This is dystopia, obviously. Um, it's very easy to get um, <laughs> get real depressed and upset about stuff happening that's in this world, right? Um, but we always forget. I think while we're in these worlds that in reality, any dystopic or utopic tendencies we find in our own world are all part of a, of a flow in a direction away or towards different things at all times. Right. So something is happening in a society uh, in a particular year and 10 years from then something else is happening and things are rising and falling and flowing and ebbing. Right. And you can see patterns that are repeating throughout other, you know, multiple countries with political stuff and laws and all sorts of things. But in a dystopia novel like this, it feels like everything's frozen, right? That the entire, and in fact, that's the whole utopian idea is, is here's a society that is perfected. Um, there is no want and everybody acts in, a way that helps everybody else. And only time I see, you know, an, any exception to this was with that Kim Stanley Robinson Pacific Edge book where, you know, it's utopia, but the reason it's a utopia is because there's people working hard to try and make it that way. And yeah. there's lots of little shit, shit birds who are fucking things up along the way. And not everything's perfect. Not everything works out, but we're in a system that is heading in a good direction, but it's not a static thing here i guess the idea is 100 years after basically uh hitler is dead but um his folks got their way and now everything's like this forever it's like you know how 1984 is normally yeah yeah right right boot stamping on the human face forever or exactly brave new world where where in the text itself it mentions like yeah like 100 years like some years from now the the guy who whose uh, injections got screwed up is going to die. So it just, yeah, the world's just going to go on after the story as, as it has before. And will again, right. There's the resistance is, is, is resistance is useless. Right. No, the resistance in this, this culture has been gelded so that, you know, nobody's ever going to actually, you know, actually resist. It's like this forever. 
remember when we did Paul News from Nowhere? Oh, maybe you weren't on that one. I was not in on that one. Okay, uh, William Morris book. That was one of the responses to the Bellamy. Um, and, you know, William Morris is one of these um, uh, very uh, interesting fellows in the 1890s. And basically, the craft, craft culture. Exactly. Yeah. And making, you know, art out of everything and everybody should be an artist sort of thing. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, his wife's cheating on him with his best friend and... Uh, he doesn't like that, but he wrote a he, he wrote a whole other book about that, right? Um, would the would be on the world, but uh, in News from Nowhere, a guy from uh, then London uh, goes a hundred years into the future and finds it to be a rural paradise, right, where everybody doesn't have to work hard every day and they spend a lot of time um, working on crafty sort of stuff and adding a lot of filigrees to their, you know, their hose which they go out in the field and hoe for a while and because everybody pitches in and everybody shares everything's cool um it's a fantasy right? <laughs> even though it's a science fiction sort of idea the technology you know barely advanced uh in the in the actual story it's a fantasy in the sense that things can't uh change everything is it come to a static state and the thing is we have that within us too Right. You and I are different than we were 20 years ago. And if we're still alive, we'll be different in 20 years. Um, and we think we're cultivating good habits and getting rid of bad habits. But if we could, if we could live a billion years, right, or an infinite amount of time, we would probably think that we're going to come to a steady state where we are, uh, we've refined our morality. We've uh, refined our diets, right? We've, we brushed our hair in the just the right way, but that's all a myth but too. It's not that long ago that Francis Fukuyama was declaring that we'd reached the end of history, uh-huh. right? Yep. Yes. Like, and he was and wrong. Everybody thought that the <laughs> oh, the, the 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 internationalist uh, consensus had reached a point where you know we'd solved everything. Yep. Yeah. Uh, NATO's still a thing. <laughs> it shouldn't be, but it is. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff going on, uh, that are completely ridiculous. Um, and this is not a book that, like, I, I really enjoy a good book that, you know, takes you, uh, on a journey and then says, yep, life's ridiculous. That is not this. This is, this is a book takes you on a journey and says, uh, people can be cruel. Uh, and I always think about, the, you know, uh, this, you know, I don't visit the United States, right? <laughs> I haven't visited the United States since Peter Watts uh, got the shit kicked out of him at the border. I thought, I, I'm, I'm probably, I probably wouldn't have that happen to me. But on principle, the fact that, you know, he's being abused at the border, I think that that's horrible. I don't think I should, you know, have to, you know, be freaked out about a border crossing like that. that- I, I do have I do have friends international who will not come to the United States. Period. End of story. Because I, I they're afraid of to. what's going to happen. I would love to, but I I just don't think you know that kind of abuse is acceptable. And I'm not. I mean, it's it it'd be nice, but the thing is, is um, it's it's kind of unreasonable that I'm like that. But I understand <laughs> why it is because. If you don't, if you give in, you, you end up uh, giving into a lot of shit. 
So you have to sort of draw lines in the sand for yourself and sort of think about, hmm, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. Um, you know, I, uh, uh, some friend of mine wants to give me a job in Texas. I said, if Bernie wins, right? <laughs> maybe the laws will change. Maybe things that, the, you know, some, uh, places will be abolished. Maybe, you know, uh, but I, I just don't, I, I think about how, you know, we ha- all have to draw lines in the sand. Um, the abuses that are he- heaped upon the Nazis here are all justified, but the British aren't that great either, right? <laughs> and this doesn't say anything like that. It says basically, I, I think that this is much more about a personal story about a guy who, uh, I mean, it, it's not a true story, right? But it's about a guy who has personally suffered in, in the war. Um, and I, th- I think one nice way to read it is that it's all a sort of a w- w- walking dream, right? While he was hiking away, he, how does he get from where he is to where he was, right? Walking across German, Eastern, not Eastern Germany, but Eastern Europe. Um, uh, how does he get to this fantastic estate a uh, hundred years into the future? Uh, he's walking there and he's, his body is sort of, he's tripping out. He's having a daydream or a night dream, right? And, and he spins up this whole story in his mind is one way to read it. And I, I also get the sense that if I was reading very, very closely, which I couldn't because it was an audiobook, at the beginning, I think he's, he, I think he's making a point that this has happened more than once to him, right? The reason he's not going to marry his, his intended is because he has to wait and make sure it doesn't keep happening, right? And I thought it was... I think it had happened more than once, and that that, that was the first time well, it happened. Well, he he, he kept he kept, say, he kept saying that yeah, like if it doesn't happen again and happen again, then I can then I can marry Kit. It's like he's like he's afraid of falling back into fairy, which goes back to the whole fairy uh, right it, interpretation. You're of saying this. you're saying it a fairy. I, I I totally see that, especially when we just did the Elf Trap by Francis yeah, Stevens, me- which is totally that that. But there's no hint that it's like a particularly. Like, there's no well, fey element, but I, I, it does. I, 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 I disagree. I disagree. It, I mean, he. I say I mean, the. I, I totally agree with you, Paul. That the the structure is that, but I don't think there's any hint, you know, like of pixie dust at all. It feels uh, like it's the, much the, more psychological. The, 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 the Bowen field is the quote unquote pixie dust. It's it's. it's now I'm arguing against myself. This is a science fiction. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. I mean, I mean, he, he's he's wandering through Eastern Europe, trying to find his, trying to find a, a way to get to escape a after station, escaping right, the thing. Yeah. yeah, and he he basically falls asleep and winds up in a hospital inside of Fairyland, and he's <laughs> he's bound he's bound he's bound. I mean, he gets hunted by the wild hunt. He he makes a connection, and then he, when the fields escaped, he he escapes the borders of Fairyland back into the real world. But just like, say, Thomas the Rhymer, he's afraid that he's going to fall back into Fairyland. And who's to say he couldn't? Because he didn't know how he did it the last time. He could fall back again at any time. That that does kind of point to uh, yeah, mental to illness, t- right? Is is the other thing? Is like. Right. What makes someone not just stressed out and uh, or easily triggered or whatever, right? What makes someone actually mentally ill is not a fact that a doctor has diagnosed it or that a court has determined it. 
It's that they are. And we can't, we don't have perfect access to that. But there is a continuum between, uh, you know, normal operating life and not, you know, having great difficulties and having great difficulties with everything. Uh, you know, being in catatonic or semi-catatonic state is, you know, there's a continuum in between there. You, you keep saying fairyland. The thing is, is I, I, I love at the beginning of his visit to this quote unquote fairyland. It's much more like, uh, Oberon and Titania sort of fairyland in a certain sense, except it's all fake, right? It's, it, that's the culture that the fact that they've got torches and torchbearers, um, it's an affectation, right? Rather than a technology. But when we're in the mm-hmm. hospital, he takes one of these, uh, cups that he notes, like he thinks himself as a detective and he drops it on the floor in order to test its quality. And he realizes this is a technology we do not yet possess. Right. Right. right the super plastic. So, yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the, the dishes are heavily worn, but they're of high quality. All the clothing is of high quality. Um, right. Everything, even the, his nurse's uniform is like, these are rich folks or somebody, uh, you know, this is, this is not the poverty stricken th- that has dressed up all these costumed characters on this estate. We never see outside, uh, the thing, what, what Philip K. Dick said about, uh, the man on high castle, right? Is that he had to write it, uh, not about the Nazis because, the, that one line in the book is what they did in Africa, right? Yes, um, and 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 that and that's and in a typical Dixian way, that's enough for just yeah, you don't need to know anymore. And, and I love that hint because you can't really tell stories about uh, swaths of people. You can only tell stories about individuals, right? Individuals in a group, individuals uh, you know to each other, or individuals on their own, possibly, um, and in. Man in the High Castle, we've got all of that sort of within a culture, and you've got a guy who who uh, turns out to be a Nazi, a guy who turns out to be an asshole, right? A guy who uh, a, a girl who um, you know touches very close to being um, killed, and or maybe not, um, and ends up killing somebody, and and those personal sort of relationships with the culture. I think are why this is a really interesting book. It, it, it feels like with that, without that frame, I don't think this story works very well. I think that the the frame makes it all the better. I think you're completely correct. I think it it would spectacularly fail without the frame. He is questioning Uh, his, his self in a way that we cannot have happen if it's a regular, that's why it doesn't feel like a regular science fiction story. I'd also like to just speculate about whether or not Sarban was conscious about the crimes of uh, the British Empire, and by having the the fiance Alan's fiance be a hunting enthusiast, hinting that there were. Um, some ugly parallels that could be drawn between the fiancé and the huntmaster, hmm. and by extension between Great Britain's colonial history and the the crimes of the Nazis. Hmm. Well, he was he was 
uh, personally, right? He was an ambassador. He was, he, he was, he was, uh, in late career, he was, uh, not as a writer, uh, in, in the diplomatic service. He was like, um, doing surveillance and stuff like that. So he's not against the system. <laughs> not in his country anyways. I don't think there's any uh, conscious critique of the British. I think that that's all, um, that's all us. Because uh, that 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 parallel doesn't doesn't I I don't think there's much there to suggest that he he is really criticizing his own system. Well, he's definitely criticizing. Hunt. Yeah, go for it. He's definitely criticizing the fiance. Well, yes, I guess uh, it's interesting, right? Like. What is and our she, relationship to hunting, right? I, I think that the, the, what Oscar Wilde said is kind of interesting, right? Why are they hunting these foxes? Because it's what they do and they do it unconsciously, right? It's like, it's fun to do. It's a activity that we do this time of year. It's cool to do. Why are we doing it? It's not for food, right? If you go on a turkey hunt and you go and get a turkey and then you feed your family with that turkey, that makes sense. Foxes. I guess you could say they're pests and they damage your turkey, right? Um, that's why there's no lions in England and no bears in England and no wolves in England, right? Um, but they they keep foxes as this sort of activity, right? So is, it, is there a parallel? I guess there is. It, it, that parallel is definitely to the Nazis. And I think what's really interesting Right. Is the criticism, we haven't touched on this at all. Is the, the Gauleiter, when he comes with his, his hunting party and the hunt that they go on is a, a very, um, fake hunt, right? It's like shooting fish in a barrel. You guys remember this part? Hello? Hello? Oh, oh hey. Paul, you still there? Is Paul's- uh-oh. Yeah, yes, I'm sorry. Okay. I had to run to the bathroom. Oh, no worries. Um, anyways, I, I just, I think the part with the Gauleiter where he, he, uh, he witnesses how these people are going on a hunt, but they, they don't do it in the enthusiastic way of a real hunter would. They do it in the way that you go hunting, uh, fish in a barrel, right? There's particular lines that, that they can pop out of and they just wait. They don't actually, it's like golfing on mini golf versus golfing on a golf course or actually just golfing to the Scottish, you know, countryside. Mini golf hunting. I like that. Yes. Right. So it's fit, you know, it's, it's like, there's a very similar thing. Like when I was a kid, uh, we went to Barkerville, which is in British Columbia. It's where they had uh, the gold rush. Right. And it's a whole town that's uh, made up of, uh, you know, it, it's basically a tourist attraction for schools to bring kids to show you what the, what, what hanging Judge Begbie was doing and, right, all these, uh, you know, old timey things. And one of the things they do is they give you a trough and they pour sand into it and seeded into the sand is gold. You pay for the, bag of sand you pay for the pan that you're panning with you pay for the trough and the experience of panning for gold but you're not actually panning for you're panning for the gold that you already bought that's in the sand right it's a fake experience it's not going down to the creek and hoping to find gold 
and it's not training because that's the end of it. Right. It's it's not it's not like uh, there's there's a places in Arkansas and, and in Ontario where you can actually hunt for actual actual minerals and what you find is what you keep. It's it's a that's an ersatz experience because it's all been prayed out for you. Whereas the whereas the diamond mine in Arkansas, if you find a diamond, you find a diamond and right. And then you like take a that diamond. Ago, and yeah, you go yeah, and do something ago, with your life. Yeah, found a nice money. one. Yeah, right. So w- when the hunt master, uh, the hunt master, the uh, the head of this Reich estate, Forrester. yeah, the Reich Forester, Reich Forester, right? Um, he seems to have contempt for everybody around him, including, uh, you know, his the uh, his guests, and it's almost like if you think of it, like. From what, why is it like that? It's almost like this is like a medieval times restaurant in Nazi Germany. <laughs> because what they've done is they take the SS, you know, um, sort of shitty, uh, you know, ideas about what German paganism is, and then they turn it into a, a profitable enterprise. And he likes actual hunting, but because the estate has a border, Right, a fence. Real forests where you go hunting, they don't have fences that keep the game in. And when they do, real hunters don't like people who actually enjoy the hunting experience. They don't usually like that because it's fake, right? The whole point is to go out in the woods and kill something that you're going to eat. Um, because it's good to go out for a walk, just why a lot of people like golf, right? They get to, it's like a, it's a safe walk in nature, right? Yes, but you know about Twain's comment about golf what yeah what's he's a good walk ruined a good walk ruined yes. right <laughs> well at least it's a walk the, right I, 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 let's go for it do i recall that the forester's the only character with any facial hair like everybody else is described yeah. in in very clean terms yes and he is almost he's a throwback incarnation of wilderness he's the he's I, the incarnation of like the wildness right it is a very striking description when you get to him. Mm-hmm. And it's different. And so that, that end point where he says to our hero, um, I will save you for another moon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, there's almost like an, an acknowledgement that all of this, uh, what is theoretically a Nazi utopia for the Nazis, right? Is actually a dystopia for him personally, because he he's basically you know a manager at disney world right he's not it's not what he wants to be um he wants it to be wild and so when when you uh start digging into why are things the way they are and defying the expectations cuz i didn't expect it to be like this uh in the book when i reread it and when i read it in the first place i didn't expect it to be the way it is it's different um, by the way, you guys, um, this is a really interesting fact. Do you know what Sarban means? No. No. It's interesting, right? Because it's a weird name. And I, for years, I was like, well, that's weird. Um, so I, I dug around a little bit and I found out a fact. Uh, it's of Persian origin and it means the kind of storyteller who traveled with caravans and entertained people around the campfire during nightly stops. Oh. So, it's basically like a bard, right? A uh, 
uh, Aoyos or what are they called? The, uh, what Homer was. It's a a dude who basically does the entertainment by telling stories, uh, where you've got a lot of illiterate people, uh, on the move and they can't travel at night sitting around the campfire listening to stories. Um, it's nice. It's a nice, uh, sort of. Yep. So so that that makes sense because, uh, John William Wall, aka Sarban, his diplomatic career was in the Middle East. Yes. So yeah, he, he. he chose it with knowledge and care. I mean, he was stationed in Jeddah, Tabriz, Estefan, Casablanca. So yeah, mm-hmm. he was immer- he 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 immersed the culture, liked the liked the idea, and took the name for his pen name. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an interesting book. It's I like how short it is too because it it makes me think that that it's it's all the more plausible, right? Because if you read the the Turn of the Screw, it's actually quite long. I don't believe people would sit that long after dinner listening to a, you know, you have to go to the bathroom, you have to have, you know, you have your coffee, you have your smoke, and then you go to bed, right? Um, but three hours, you could, you could listen to a guy you know, over I, a billiard I, I, table I, for three hours. I did listen to this an entire day. Yeah. It's it was, it was, it was relatively easy to do. It's, uh, it's interesting, like how to, how to classify it. I, I wouldn't say, People are, I think, calling it a horror book as well. I, I think that that's not exactly right. I didn't get a visceral reaction to it in the way that you did, Olaf. Not at all. Well, uh, just for context, I I went vegetarian about 20 years ago. and Not because of this book, I take it. <laughs> no, no. Um, long story. But I, I yeah, I, as a vegetarian, I found it a little more... Uh, unappealing. Well, there are, there's a lot of meat heaped. I, d- I don't think there was any vi- vegetables at that banquet, right? <laughs> Somehow I doubt it. I mean, uh, all the uh, the the dressing up of the game, right? And the the fact that when it says there's two does, I'm like, are those women dressed up or like? It's not clear, right? It's sometimes no, it, it's, it's sometimes it's explicit. Oh yeah, that's a guy dressed up as a as a, a hound, and that's a lady dressed up like a cat. But sometimes, you know, like, sometimes and, it takes a little bit for them to make it clear. And, like, and, and, and if you start very, off I, thinking I, one way, yeah, and, and I think that's done on purpose. Mm-hmm. The, the, it's dehumanizing the prey and all that. So yeah, I, th- I think that's feature, not bug, on Sarban's part to do with mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. But it makes it more dreamlike and uh, more fae. Uh, as well. Shake but, it going back. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I, I think that it's, it's like, um, I keep thinking about that Star Wars experience, right? In what's Disney, Disney World or whatever, where okay. you walk around a Star Wars town, uh, and, and then you oh, go into a building now. Yeah. Right. And you go into, uh, I think it's already built and you go into a star because I watched a video on it. You go into a, like a Star Wars store and then you build a Star Wars lightsaber and like, yeah, that's, I remember being really pissed off as a kid when you, you know, you get the Batman, uh, costume and it has a picture of Batman's face on the shirt. That's not Batman's costume. That's <laughs> like, you guys didn't spend any time working on this. It's a fake experience. And, and when they have that, that dinner, it feels like it's, it, on, on first reflection, it feels just like, oh, that's weird. But 
the way he, the way the huntmaster looks around the table, right? He looks around at the at the torch bearers, and he's basically a supervisor, saying, you know, make sure those those sconces are held in place, and you know, he's not having fun. It's not for him, and he doesn't talk to any of the guests, right? He's like playing the king in in one of those. Or you guys remember the Universal Studios? Where they have like these. They weren't rides. They were like, I don't know, the Miami Vice experience or whatever. <laughs> they would just have a bunch of explosions and a couple of stuntmen jumping out of things. Uh, if you went to Universal Studios, it was like, uh, I don't know, a spectacle, I guess. And anytime, and I, yeah, go for I've it. I've never done one of those. Yeah. It, it's really weird. Like, I've never been to a medieval times, but I've seen the videos, you know, and one of my students has been to the place and, um, I, I thought it was a really cool idea as a kid. I was like, oh, that sounds, I, I want to go see that, right? But all of the jousting and the, right, they do that every night. Right? <laughs> They're actors. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's good physical exercise and all that, but that's not, you know, whenever you, when, when you're striving for utopia or dystopia, what you're trying to do is regularize things, right? You're trying to make it uh, better, make things improved, uh, you know, best practices sort of thing. Uh, we think about the future with self-driving cars, and we want all the self-driving cars to be perfect drivers because we're not perfect drivers, right? And one day, we think, all the cars will be self-driving. They'll never have accidents except when, you know, tires explode and uh, those things. We'll, we'll get better tires, and one day... Right. One day, dot, dot, dot. That I think this is all like uh, it's a trap, a fantasy that we fall into. I don't know that that's what Sarvan is putting in there, but that's what I'm getting out of it because it, it feels really weird. It didn't feel like the experience I was expecting it to be. This book, even again after years after listening to it, interesting. Not sure. It, it's a, not it, sure. It's a classic, it, but it's it's very interesting. I think it's. I think it fails to be a classic on a few levels. I don't think it's engaging enough, and I think it does come across as quite dated. But it is also a very uh, affecting piece and a rich text from which you can draw a lot of themes. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a book I'd recommend to somebody looking for an intellectual experience. Yeah, it's, um, it's that for sure. Right, and yeah, escaping and nice into and another short, world. Too, which I it's like. not a world you want to escape into. It's like it 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 it's a carnival ride of horror and dystopia that yeah you don't want to linger. And I'm glad it was that short mm-hmm. because I wouldn't want this to be eight ten hours because it would just be too much at that point mm-hmm. it, it would be exhausting at that time it uh, at that length it's well it just it doesn't, almost, need, doesn't need to be that long it you know a lot of books are way too long for for what they are this is it, it's interesting how much time is not spent in the actual world right it's it's that that frame of an hour of you know a third of the book or a quarter of the book almost being outside of the actual promise of the of the back of the book jacket, I guess that that's really interesting. And uh, yeah, it's, I think it's definitely worth spending time reading, 
Um, and it's 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 really never explored. How did the Nazis win? How did the world get to this point? Mm. And you know, glad it wasn't because I, I don't care. <laughs> a lot of I mean, that, that's what makes it not so much of an alternate history, because that is the main focus of alternate history is is the the sweep of history the the where is the divergence point mm-hmm. right that, right yeah where's the hinge upon where for want of a nail yeah the the nazis won and we lost yeah it doesn't it doesn't explore that doesn't want to explore that doesn't need to explore that yeah in fact I, i'm not sure that the fact that you know like i was saying that i i don't think it matters that they're not nazis or they are nazis i think that like if you had if this book had been written in uh 1890s um we we wouldn't get you know we'd get a lot of uh, non um i don't know you could have you, you could have it you could have it with if it was written in 1890s it would probably been run written with prussian noblemen or maybe um russian noblemen running the place exactly and, and, and it's, it's, it's not it, about it, Nazis, the same feel. it's about people and, and I always think – so I, I was mentioning, you know, going across the border and, like, the thing is, is humans are fucking weapons. That's the real thing, right? Is that they they have hands for hitting. They have hands for crafting weapons. They can attack and hurt uh, people physically um, very easily. And that's why we get that terrible excuse of why police are fear for their life. Well, it's because they're dealing with not, uh, you know, rocks on the floor, or, you know, a table. They're dealing with things that, uh, have agency and, and don't like to be attacked and have agendas of their own. And we have to be careful to not turn everybody into a dangerous weapon, but rather be disciplined about it and say, you know, what makes us, what makes a bad society is having lots of people trending towards, um, badness. And hitting each other a lot, right? Or coercing each other and tying each other up and that sort of thing. So, uh, it feels like, I don't even think, I don't even think Sarban is saying that fox hunting is bad. I don't think he's even going that far, right? I think that, that, uh, the, the whole point Oscar Wilde's making is he's just doing what he always does, which is make a joke, right? And, I, I was listening to his uh, a friend of mine, Mike Vendetti, sent me. Um, uh, it was, I think it's called the Diary of Reading Jail. Um, it's it might not be the diary. Anyways, it's um, it's what Oscar Wilde wrote about his prison experience. It's an epic poem, like I don't know, forty five minutes long, and it is just horribly brutal and amazing and beautiful, and. He was brought low. I, uh, if you guys have seen that, the biopic of, um, Wild, uh, it's, it's pretty good at covering all sort of the, how, you know, he had the success and then the court case and then he's thrown into prison and he does forced labor that is useless, right? He's like on a treadmill all day long and it's just horrible. And the reason that's happening to him or what happened to Alan Turing is not because, um, you know, uh, of any particular evil of the period as much as just people in power fuckers. 
And you got to be careful not to get on their bad side. It's kind of the lesson, right? Oscar Wilde's all flip and all. Cautionary tale. Right? Um, and, and outside of that prison camp that uh, our hero is in, the POW camp, there are other camps. And, no, you know, that's not being talked about. I, I think that that's – it's just it's, – it doesn't say one thing. It's saying there's lots of horrible shit out there and people are dangerous. And uh, there's no flip ending cuteness at the end, right? It's sort of, I don't, I love that it ends with that question, Olaf, right? Should I? Oh, yeah. That? Right? Oh, and and the cat, right? The cat. What's the cat's name? Fla- Smuts, right? Was it right. Smuts? Okay. I don't, I don't recall. I think it was Smuts. It sounds right. Or Smuts. Um, it's, that's actually funny now that uh, I think of that. I'm pretty sure it is Smuts. Um, you guys know who, who that person is? Um, uh, so Jan Smuts, maybe, there we go. Something interesting. So Field Marshal Jan Christian Smuts was South African statesman, military leader, and philosopher. He was basically best buds with, um, very interesting. He was best buds with, um, uh, Churchill. And he was also on the opposite side of the war in South Africa. That's how they met. Is uh, oh, and guess who was in a prison camp in South Africa concentration camp? Churchill. Ah, both of them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. It Churchill. Is a small world. Ch- uh, Churchill's side was the one who actually created concentration camps in South Africa. That's the first time the term is used, um, and. Smuts was, uh, was on the other side. And of course, after the, uh, yeah. Oh, and he's also prime minister of South Africa, right? So this is a very interesting, uh, maybe it is a critique of the British Empire. I don't know. Olaf, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I, I, I do think there's something there because there well, this is evidence of it. I, yeah. I, I, I know that Sarbon was a lord and involved. Involved in in the intelligence service, but there were people in those positions who were critical of past atrocities, and especially uh, the sorts of lords who would take a name from their local culture, mm-hmm. who would have that sort of respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a picture if you uh, go to the Wikipedia of uh, Jan Smuts. There's a picture of Jacobus and Katerina Smuts in 1893, and uh, he is sitting on a chair covered in a spotted fur. Like oh, South yeah. African yeah. hunters, right? Um, this also reminds me uh, of that great, great story, uh, The Grove of Ashtaroth by John Buchan. Who, yes, uh, which we did on the right, podcast. Right, but I think, I think um, oh yeah, it was, it was in the Yellow Book. Oscar, there's a poem about uh, the Yellow Book and uh, when Oscar Wilde goes to prison. Um, now the Yellow Book is in the hands of John Buchan, right? Who is basically the uh, equivalent, uh, much more prolific, uh, World War One equivalent of the World War II um, Sarban. He was a diplomatic dude, um, became governor, governor general, general of Canada. Canada. Right. Lord. And the Grove Tweets of Ashtaroth, as I remember. Exactly. And grow, uh, uh, in the Grove of Ashtaroth, the criticism is there's this Jewish guy who's, uh, found 
a, an estate, a perfect place for an estate in South Africa. He builds it. His English friend goes away uh, while he's building it, comes back and finds him sort of ruined in a very uh, gro- uh, yellow, uh, decadent, uh, yellow 90s sort of way, sort of unspeakably can't say why he was ruined. Um, it turns out that there's a, a goddess living in a grove nearby and uh, she's having a strong effect on him because he's Jewish. Um, and the the solution is for the friend to go into the grove, the last place on earth for this goddess to inhabit, and he blows it up with dynamite. It's, it's like, wow, it's all sorts of stuff going on, like about colonialism and stuff. But yeah, I, that's funny. It it does matter what the end words and the beginning words of the stories are, right? A cat named Smuts. Because yeah. we don't get the name of the cat at the beginning, do we? In fact, that's how we come out of, it's very interesting. It's how we come out of the, um, out of the inner frame is and by looking at the cat by the fire. I wonder whether or not readers in the 1950s would have picked up on that Smuts reference. So, oh, I'm sure it'd been much more obvious. To, yeah, I, I think cause he, he was, well he was a, he was a figure like you would see him, um, in uh in videos with you know films with uh churchill because they they hung out he was like basically an advisor military advisor and well smuts would have just died right because he he died in 1950 Mm -hmm. so and churchill was prime minister again at this point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah uh, it's funny who named that cat, right? <laughs> was it was it the uh, the uh, narrator? Was it the uh, the uh, outer the outer narrator, the guy who's telling us the story? Was it the uh, was it the girl uh, the t- intended? Because if it was that, right? What uh, yeah. I don't have that end line. I wish I had the text because I'd like to read that again and see exactly what she said. Because she said something like, um, "Where is that damn cat?" Or something like let it out or something. <laughs> right? And that's why right. that, that, those lines, that's why the outer narrator doesn't understand why, why he sh- maybe shouldn't tell her this story that he just told to our narrator. Yeah. Fascinating. Interesting you book. Know, thinking of British politics, because we've brought up Churchill. An, a, a line from uh, do, do you know Anurin Bevan? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he was the um, mi- the secretary of. of uh, I, I'm trying. I forget his position in the Attlee government from 1945 to 1950, but he was basically the right hand man of Clement Attlee, mm-hmm. and he's generally regarded as the father of the NHS. But mm-hmm. he he has this wonderful line, uh, which I. I I believe it's it's something to the effect of fascism is not in itself a new order of society, but the sound of the future refusing to be born. Mm. I, I'm pretty close on it. Mm-hmm. it. It's it's definitely something about the future refusing to be born. And yeah, so it's a romantic that, sort of. Uh, but yeah, go for it. Uh, that that specific line. Yep, uh, I, as got, I, I got it. Fascism oh. is not. In, not in the self a new order society. It is the future refusing to be born. Hmm. That's and exactly. 
it, that line kept going through my head as I was listening to this book. And it's, it, what, it, it's that thought that was informing what I had to say early in our discussion mm-hmm. about uh, the, 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 um, the, the, that toxic nostalgia of, of fascism. Uh, and and Aaron Bevan's brilliant and wonderful, and I have nothing but good things to say about tons of his quote. I just think like he nailed that in the same way that Sarban has nailed, mm. has just hit the nail on the head mm-hmm. with this book. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. Thank <laughs> you.